Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to Venture Stories by Village Global. On this episode, Eric is joined by his co-host Ray Batra, who is the founder of ShiftUp, company creating what Ray calls gyms for productivity. They're joined by Austin Allred, who is the co-founder and CEO of Lambda School. Lambda School is a pioneer in the income sharing agreement space. Their computer science education is free until you get a job. By the way, we also apologize for the audio quality of this interview. Austin is a busy guy, so we had to catch up with him over the phone while he was in transit between a couple meetings. Without further ado, here are Austin, Eric, and Ray. If the quote, you know, Peter Thiel believes that every great startup is founded on a secret. What is Lambda and what's this, the secret or insight that has made it successful to what it is today? Yeah, I, I think we layer a couple of secrets. <clears throat> um, but the main one is that we view the main goal of education as eliminating risk. So eliminating risk in the job market for employers, eliminating risk for students is what makes them enroll. And basically, you know, the way things stand right now, going to school is just a very risky proposition, not only from time, but also from money and all sorts of other stuff. So our goal is to de-risk it as much as we can. Totally. And today, I wanted to focus the episode on sort of, you know, requests for startups in education. And so I'm curious, as you navigate the idea maze as it relates to Lambda, but also, let's say, if you were running a, a venture fund, and the entire focus of the fund was to evaluate opportunities to disrupt education for the future of education, what might your thesis be and how might you evaluate different opportunities? I mean, I think the most difficult part of any education play is getting market share. It's funny because it's one of those things that everybody uses, but it's so hard to carve out your own niche, especially, you know, most, you know, when we talk with ed tech investors, ed tech is usually targeting K through 12 which means you're targeting school districts that are notoriously bad at signing deals and spending money. So I would look first and foremost for a business model innovation that helps them kind of cut through that and a way that you can do something that's different enough um, that you can get a large market share. I think those opportunities are few and far between in education, but when you hit one, it has the potential to be really, really big. Right, so that's, I mean, that would basically be the, the I mean, some people are talking about that as, as a, a different framing of ed, like ed tech being specifically to schools, through schools, as opposed to consumer learning, like direct to consumer. Like any companies in particular that you see that are doing that super well? Awesome. Any, any companies that are doing which side well? You know, just direct to consumer, like in terms of that. I don't know, like I was basically reintroduced to that kind of idea recently, I think. You know, like you said, ed tech has traditionally been two schools, which are super hard, as opposed to just like bypassing that entirely, just kind of more of a more of a consumer product as opposed to an ed tech product per se. I mean, I, I really think that that's where the future is. Um, there are a couple that come to mind. There's stuff like VIP Kid in China that's you know English training, and they have somebody in America that trains you know a child that's living in China, and they connect them remotely and automate all the billing and all that stuff. Uh, you know. It's one of those things where you have to be careful recommending something because anything you would recommend has been tried five times. You have to find a unique angle. The other hole that I think is super exploitable right now is anything in trade education. So, you know, training people in HVAC or plumbing or 
welding, stuff like that. If you can find a way to make that scale well, the market is there, both the employer and the student side. I've heard, uh, I mean, I ran into a CEO recently out in Indianapolis who is running a company called uh, 180 Skills, which was basically trying to do like online courses for manufacturing training. And I'm not totally sure. I mean, apparently they've worked with like some pretty cool companies, I think like Boeing or something. They're the only one that I've seen. But if you could do, you know, MOOCs for, and then basically like the, the last, you know, the, the last mile of that training, the last quarter of it might be on the on the job. But if you can get people to training, scale it, and then catch into employers. Interesting. The, the hard part about those it's just, is it VC backable in the sense that like, could that become a billion dollar company? It could, it would have, you know, a lot of things would have to really fall into place to make that happen and to scale. So there's, you know, the, the brick and mortar problem as well, which most startups don't have to even think about. But if you're training somebody to be a plumber, it's really hard to do that in a virtual environment. Right, right. I mean, we, uh, it's, it's funny, you know, <laughs> that's what Shift Up does, right? Where we're sort of going the opposite direction where, to some extent, where I think that we're basically betting that that a lot of that there's a lot of people out there who who basically really want or like highly prefer in person communities rather than just like learning online. And even though yeah, spaces spaces aren't it's not just virtual; it's actually in person. But you know, could we become you know could you could you have a WeWork for learning a WeWork for education? I think there are some people. There are definitely some other people out there trying it as well. Yeah, that's interesting. And I mean, to some degree, WeWork wants to be that, right? It, it's interesting if you look at like the history of code schools, a lot of them either started out as co-working spaces or they started as code schools and became a co-working space. There's kind of a, mm-hmm. a tight marriage between those two and that those business models can interoperate with, with each other fairly well. It's, I know that I'm, there's got to be something there in real estate. That's interesting. Totally. Uh, also, can you talk about what other business model innovation you've, you've seen within education outside of Lambda? I mean, I think pay for success generally is becoming more and more popular. I mean, I think that a lot of education for a very long time was just selling courses. So MOOCs came along, the Udacity, Coursera, Udemy's of the world, where you know now instead of going to college for four years, you can buy a single course for $800 or for $10 or, or for whatever. Then there's the plural sites of the world that take those courses, get a huge library of them, and then go sell them to enterprise. I think a lot, like that's probably the easiest way to get money is through enterprise somehow. Something called Guild Education, which is fascinating. And they're basically college classes as a benefit. So they partner with various universities and then they go out and so they build this big library of you know digital classes and then they go sell that to an enterprise as a package. So if you work at Walmart, for example, you have this, you know, you can attend all these university classes and as long as you attend under these ramifications, then you don't pay anything. So kind of education as a benefit, I think is really interesting. We're working with a couple of companies that are like, hey, we want to train our entire X team to be data scientists. So can you, you know, we'll just keep them on staff, but we need them to understand the basics of data science. We'll just pay you N dollars per student and have you guys do that. Um, which isn't really our bread and butter, but we'll we'll do from time to time. I think that model is interesting as well. And I think a lot of the code schools will start to push that way to company-funded, employer-funded education as opposed to consumer. Yeah. What have you learned at Lambda about how people learn or or otherwise that you can apply elsewhere? And as you think about the future of Lambda, like could you see yourself going into medicine or going into law or, or where else could you expand? Yeah, I think the, the most important things are 
you know, because we are based entirely on success, we have to make it work for students. And we can't get into a world where we say, you know, this student just didn't work hard enough. This student didn't try hard enough. Yeah, so we really have to make sure that our students are successful. And I think one of the most difficult aspects of learning is actually not the education side, but the other stuff. Finding the time and the money to just be able to put your head down and focus. Um, and then knowing what you should focus on when that's happening is much more difficult than I think the average person would assume. So for that, and that, that's when you just Thank launched, you. right? I, I think in the last month, you know, stipends, right? You're paying stipends for people. And I know you've been trying to get housing for folks as well. Yeah, so we basically, I mean, we removed the tuition aspect. So you don't have to pay us a big lump sum upfront, which is awesome. But you still have to find the time. So yeah, we have living stipends that we're piloting. We have housing that we're piloting. Um, and it's really just, you know, how can we abstract away all of the other challenges that someone would encounter when they're trying to switch careers? In an ideal world, you know, five years from now, someone will show up at Lambda School, they'll show us that they're capable and talented, and we'll just take care of everything else. We'll pay their bills, we'll pay their mortgage, we'll do whatever it takes to get them there, and then they pay it back on the other side. And I think there is some subset of society for whom it's just a really difficult proposition if that's not available. Totally. And that's how education should be. <laughs> yeah. In the ideal world. Yeah. Five years out, 10 years out. How do you think about sort of the different directions you could go? And how, how do you think about what you need, but what needs to be true to, to pick an either Like what parts of the road do you see, you see coming in, in the future for Lambda? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, five years from now we'll have a dozen or two separate verticals. So most people think of Lambda School as a software engineering school. I don't think that will be the case. The thing that we have to be careful about is, as a school, we're taking on all of the risk. So we have to make sure that it works on the other side. And we're doing that really well on the software side. But as you add more tracks or more verticals, you have to solve every part of the equation for all of those verticals. So, you know, getting the admissions right, so you're selecting the right people, getting the course right, so that it's what people need to be taught. Um, having hiring partnerships on the other side, or at least some way for students to get hired. And that looks pretty different industry to industry. So our main cause is to industry by industry, break that down and solve all those parts of the equation and then just kind of build on the advantages that we've already created by making it work in the first place, really. So follow up on that, I mean, you mentioned that, I mean, Lambda's making bets on people, right? You're, you're, and I think you mentioned uh, in some other interviews, Derek, you're focused on helping, you know, the very talented, very smart. I'm just curious, you know, from whether it's Lambda or somebody else in this whole space, like what about everybody else? Like what's, what is the solution for those who aren't going to get into an elite boot camp? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, not the entire world is going to become a software engineer. But I, I would guess that if you look at, you know, the population from an economic perspective, probably less than 10% of people are actually at their true economic potential. If you put a little leverage and a little money behind most people, I would imagine you could increase their income. So software engineering is just the obvious place to start because you're right. moving people to, a, you know, in a very short time to a very high paying role. But the model works for nursing, it works for psychologists, it works for guidance counselors. It's just not the same margins. So you obviously start where there's the more obvious opportunity, and then we'll kind of work our way backwards to, you know, I think maybe 20 years from now, we might have every 
career track you could possibly imagine and you can just do it you just have to be careful as you're as you're doing that that you don't overextend yourself which what i am prone to do so <laughs> and do you do you see yourself staying uh in all these different verticals uh, entirely online or do you see yourself for some of these uh training areas having sort of in-person uh trainings yeah there would probably be an in-person element eventually but like i mean that's like asking Amazon, you know, if they're going to have an in-person element, of course they will eventually, right, but right, it's right. just so far down the priority list that they're getting to it now 20 years later. It might come sooner for us, but that's not, you know, we're trying to actively avoid that right now. What do you spend most of your time thinking about? I mean, right now I spend most of my time thinking about hiring and how to get the right executives on the team because, I mean, I'm not in the weeds anymore, really. We've got full-time, we've got almost 40 people, and then part-time, we've got another 80. So I don't even know all the students' names anymore. So for me, it's mostly just getting the right people that can drive the right programs and make sure that all of the different systems and pieces in this very complex business model, that none of them are failing. Because if any single piece goes wrong, then the whole thing just crumbles. So I just kind of feel like I'm watching this machine trying to make sure that nothing is jammed up and that everything can, you know, is, is still spinning so I can hit the gas even harder, basically. You discussed in a previous podcast that Lambda is a human psychology company disguised as an education company. Can you unpack that? Yeah, I think we do. Like our curriculum is really solid. Um, but most people, like the curriculum isn't what makes you win, right? The curriculum is out there. You can find a class for JavaScript. You can find a class for, I don't know, C. The thing that makes us win is that we help people do the mental work that it takes to go through that stuff. So, you know, if we just had like, if we put our curriculum self-paced and it was just, okay, everybody go for it, I would guess we would have a... 3%, 5% completion rate. But by building in the right social infrastructure, the right instructional design, the right who is working with whom at what time, all that stuff is critically important in an entirely online course because, you know, especially one that's free up front. So if a student closes their laptop and walks away, that's it. So you have to try to make students learn, which is I don't think it's a natural thing to do for a lot of people, at least in when they come to us, I don't think it is. It's interesting. I mean, for, for shift up what I'm, what I'm doing right now, it's, you know, based on a similar premise uh, in the sense that we're not at this point, we're not creating our own content. We're, you know, we're curating content. We don't think that that's what, that's the difference maker, but we, we basically provide structure. The difference I think is uh, structure and coaching and, you know, accountability and, and all these sorts of things, but we're doing it, you know, in person. And I'm curious from your perspective, you know, uh, for whom does is, is online fine? Like, like who does it work for? You know, online versus versus in person, or um, you know, or do you think that it's that online is fine for everybody? I think in, in the past you've mentioned you're a firm believer that online is a better experience than than not fine. Yeah, so we may disagree on that. I mean, it, it's certainly easier to learn in a physical classroom if there's not proper instructional design. So, in my mind, basically the physical world gives you all of these, like, you can just glance at somebody and see what they're doing and you can see the emotions on their face. You know, that's easier to do than in an online world. So you have to build in instructional design and software in the background 
it's very difficult to make an online class work. But when it's working well, the nice thing is that it's instantly scalable. You can have people, you know, jumping all around. We can we can have a class of a thousand people and then we can subdivide it into groups of eight with one click. And then we can see what everybody's saying to everybody else. We can run that through a machine learning algorithm. We can see who's struggling. And we can do all that instantly. You can't really do that in a physical space. So I think the key is, you know, do you build the infrastructure that's required to make online learning really great? Or do you just try to take what works in a physical classroom and put it online? I think that's destined to fail. I mean, I, I would, my thought on this is that you have, uh, you know, for folks who are like actually highly determined to get jobs, that that's a lot easier uh, for, for them to make online work. But if you're talking about people who might just be wanting to like learn a code just to be more digitally literate, or, you know, it's just some sort of like, to some extent, perhaps lesser uh, levels of motivation that that just wouldn't work. Or is that, I mean, I guess it, I know, that, that's, what we, that's what we see anyways. I'm curious uh, if you have any thoughts on that. You know, if somebody's highly determined to, to get there, then, you know, they'll make the online work. Yeah, that, that could be true. I mean, we're, our, our sample is only the people that are trying to make that career switch. So I, I can't speak to casual learners or people who are less inclined to, to do something. And, you know, to be fair, again, we do filter for people that are to some degree self-disciplined and committed. If we took a random sampling of Americans and put them through our course, it would probably be difficult. So we have to, yeah, you, you have to be mindful of all that stuff for sure. As far as how to help someone who's unmotivated learn, that's a difficult challenge that I don't know how to solve. Yeah, I mean, from my experience, it's more that if you're talking about, if you're using digital learning, if you're using online learning, like it's almost, you know, a prerequisite that you have to have some level of motivation or a reason why to do it. And if you don't, typically people's eyes just glaze over. Um, so that's something that I've noticed. <laughs> yeah, I, I think some of that is, is the case. I think some of that is also just, we basically recorded a professor talking to a camera and then put it online. And then we're shocked that people don't like watch the whole thing. That's not surprising to me. Like if there's not any interactivity, if there's not any like back and forth, like asynchronous is probably 10 times as difficult to make work than synchronous in my mind. But yeah, you're probably right. It probably does take some level of, you know, self-determinedness. I would say that, you know, we, you know, if you take the average MOOC and they're getting a two to 3% completion rate, if you took that same course content and built it into the proper instructional design with, you know, synchronous aspects, like I don't believe that it would remain 3% completion rate. I think that we basically did a really crappy job of putting courses online and then we blame the online aspect instead yeah. of the crappiness of the courses. Also, can you talk a little bit more about how you try to make the online learning feel like an offline learning? And I'll also ask that in the framing of, you, you've mentioned how, you know, you're sort of unbundling college, you know, there's a liberal arts component, there's the sort of network community school spirit component, and then there's sort of the, you know, the trade school component. That, that's the one you're focused on. And you're, you're not really focused on liberal arts. Have you sort of done away with the network or school spirit or community? Or, or how, how do you think about incorporating that at Lambda? No, I think we have that in space, actually. So, you know, students spend all day with each other. They're video conferencing all day. They're slacking all day. They're working all day together. So that. Like, I think that's what's missing from online courses, actually, is we just took, you know, here's the lecture and we put that online and we thought that that's what caused the learning. And really, that's not the case. Really, it's working with the people around you 
that makes it really special. It's, you know, the interactivity, that, that kind of thing. Well, is there anything more besides, besides synchronous that you have at Lambda that sort of differentiated that adds to school spirit or, or community or? Yeah, I mean, as, as far as instructional design goes, we do a lot of stuff. So, for example, we can, we work backwards from objectives. And if you, uh, so each week we have what we call a sprint. And each, at the end of each week on Friday, we have a sprint challenge. If you don't pass that sprint challenge, instead of you know pushing you on into the next class, we just roll you back and you do that week again. And we form a new cohort of people that are going through it for the second time and assign you more help. So that's something that would be incredibly difficult in a physical classroom because you can't infinitely subdivide classes and you can't you know scale in structures into multiple physical locations. But in an online world, that's easy. So you can do mastery-based progression, which has been shown in pedagogical study after pedagogical study to be more effective, but it just doesn't make sense really in a physical environment unless you have an infinite amount of money. So there's a lot of stuff like that that just really makes, you know, the scalability makes it special. Well, we, we do a uh, mastery-based learning too. So basically our students are, I mean, we don't have like a specific start and stop time. I mean, people are basically jumping in when they want to, they're moving at their own pace, they're kind of going through and when they they take assessments every month and, you know, when they're done, they're done <laughs> to some extent. I know it's not exactly what you're saying, but I think we're trying to incorporate that too. In a... What's the best critique of ISA funded education and training models that, that you've heard and, and how do you respond? I'll, I'll give you the best critique and the worst critique. The worst critique is that it's indentured servitude, which is insane to me because, you know, you can pay us $30,000, the income share agreement goes away. We don't force you to work anywhere. We don't force you to do anything. You just, when you're making enough money, you pay us back as opposed to a loan where you'd pay us back no matter what. That's the worst critique. That's not what you asked for. I just wanted to throw that out there. The best critique of an income share agreement is either that um, it's based on pre-tax revenue that students have to pay post-tax. So for example, if you're making $100,000 and the percentage on the ISA is 10%, you have to pay $10,000, but it's really important to educate students that that is it's 10% of pre-tax which may be more of post-tax and you know of course you could if you ran off the rails have an income share agreement that's 99% for five years or 5% for 80 years or, or something egregious like that so we hope that regulators come in and draw some you know guidelines the same way you wouldn't want somebody to be lending money at a 10,000% APR or something like that. That's probably the best criticism of the income share agreements. Just, it's a relatively new asset class, and not everybody fully understands what that means when they're getting into it. One follow-up on that. When you think about like ISAs for skills training and, and to just to get, to get a job, it seems to make perfect sense because the incentives are completely aligned. And I guess this kind of goes back to what you think is you know the, the purpose of higher education. If it's purely to get a job, if it's purely to do the skills, then sure, then those incentives are aligned. But I guess like, what do you see the applicability for ISAs in terms of colleges more broadly uh, as, and then part of that is like, what do you think is the purposes of college? Is it purely get a job? Are there other aspects to it or what should it be? Yeah, that, that's, I mean, the reality is right now, colleges are this huge bundle of, you know, you hang out with your friends, you go get drunk, you go to football games, you go to classes, you get a network. It's like 10 different things. And one of the difficult things about, you know, all the startups that try to replace the university education 
is they try to, you know, you try to do four of those. You try to figure out which aspects are the most important and which you can kind of leave off. We are basically saying, you know, we're not a university, we're a trade school. And our only purpose in life is to get you a job and that's it. And we have nothing against liberal arts. I love Shakespeare. I love Proust. But there, you know, there may be different time and place for that. And it may not make sense for every person to pay $40,000 a year while they're reading Shakespeare. So we intentionally say, you know, we do not have a sports team. We do not have the party lifestyle. And most of our students are older, either have, have done that, have explored the world and have found themselves and now have a family they need to put food on the table for. Or they, you know, find that in other ways. So I think that's probably one of the main differentiators between us and the other would-be college replacements is that we are just laser focused on job training only. And, that, you know, to be fair, coming back to the income share agreement point, it may be true that an income share agreement really only makes sense in that environment or it makes less sense in the traditional university environment. That's okay in that instance. I would argue that not every single person should be going to an expensive university for four years, which is blasphemy in the U.S. right now. But I think it doesn't make sense that everyone is forced down that very expensive path. You mentioned that in a tweet the other day that Lambda looks like a charity from the outside, but really you're more like a hedge fund. Can you unpack that? Yeah. So our average increase in income per student right now is over $47,000 a year. from the outside, what people see are the ridiculous success stories that we have. The, you know, I was working in an Amazon warehouse. Now I'm a software engineer at Uber. I'm making 7x what I was you know, six months ago. What is really happening is we have kind of inputs, and those are people. And then we have outputs, and those are people making more money. And our job is to make that as streamlined as we can and take a cut. So we basically are playing large-scale human arbitrage, moving everybody to the highest point of income that we can get them to, and then we take a cut for doing that. So you know, not very many institutions ever have tried to, you know, if you, if you think of hedge funds, they're always looking for an arbitrage opportunity where you, know, you can buy the same product low and sell it high, or there's something that's off in the market. We're basically a a large-scale bet that human capital is just mispriced all over the place. And if you apply a little bit of leverage and a little bit of training, a little bit of cash, you can move that person from making 30K a year to making 80K a year. And then they can pay you $30,000. And that's, it's still a win for literally everybody involved. So to that, I'd ask, why do the schooling at all? And why not instead focus on an AngelList or Kickstarter or hedge fund just, just, for, just for people in ISAs? And separately, do you think that a company just doing that today could make it work? The reason that we're not just a finance company, full stack. Like I wouldn't pay to another boot camp in exchange for an income share agreement because I don't know what's happening inside that boot camp. I'm not getting the data back out to help inform my decisions later. I think you have to do all of it at once. You have to do every step of moving someone from low income to high income and optimizing around that, or the, the financial model just starts to break down. Yeah. Just in, in closing, from my end, I, I think the question I'd ask you is, 
you know, I'll sort of phrase it this way. What sort of schooling do you want your, your kid to have K through 12 and, uh, and higher ed? Will they go to Stanford? Like, what will their education look like? Or what do you want it to look like? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think it depends on my kid, honestly. Like for me, you know, I went to a traditional university for a year, year and a half, and I just hated it and I got nothing out of it. That said, you know, I've got family members that just loved their experience and it was the best thing ever. They loved that it was broad and they had this whole experience. It just wasn't for me. So I think it depends on the personality type and what the goals of that person are. I think there are people that, you know, if, if you're a billionaire and your kid wants to spend four years in Stanford, there's no reason not to do that. We, I don't see Lambda School as competing with Harvard or Stanford or trying to do what they do. I see us as, you know, you're, you're 30 years old and you're working in accounting and you're making 50K and there's not a clear path to making 70 and you want to create a better life for your family. That's where Lambda comes in. So we just fundamentally serve a different purpose. And the purpose that my children are looking for, they should go to a school that aligns with that purpose. The best football team possible. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Optimize for the national championship. <laughs> I was gonna say, I'm 5'6", my wife is like 5'3". I can guarantee you they won't be playing football <laughs> in the national championship. So maybe they can be fans. Like looking out five years out, 10 years out, do you think there will be a change in the way that we pay for education as a country in terms of Will some of the Title IV stuff change? Like, do these schools sort of have monopolies on alternatives? Like, how do you think the market for higher education will evolve over time? Yeah, I see the, I mean, accreditation right now is very black and white. You either have Title IV or you don't. And if you have Title IV, you can print unlimited amounts of money and students have unlimited amounts of money coming in. And if you don't, you have zero. I think that that will become more of a gray area but then I have learned not to bet against the government saying the same, generally speaking. So I don't know what will happen there. It could just be that, you know, nothing changes and we keep basically the taxpayers keep on eating the losses on default. But it seems like there's a shift happening even right now where the more expensive schools are seeing their enrollment decline for the first time ever. And people are starting to become price sensitive. And everybody you talk to knows somebody that has six figures in student loans and not a prayer of paying them off. So I think we'll start to see a shift pretty soon here. Austin, I'm curious, with applicants to Lambda, what are you seeing as like the biggest bottleneck? Or like what's the biggest thing that's holding back uh, people from being ready to, to get into Lambda? I feel like we can, we can solve for everything except for hustle. And if you're not willing to put in the time and if you're not dedicated, there's just nothing we can do for you. So our main filtering is just like, will you show up every day and do the work? And if you'll do that and you're of average or moderate intelligence, you'll probably get in. The number of people that do that is shockingly low. The nice thing is that, you know, to me, the world feels pretty meritocratic. I know it's actually not, but even a student from the most ridiculous circumstances, if they'll show up every day and do the work, they, they get hired. Of course, the hard part is getting to that point where they can do the work. Um, that's what we're working on solving. I mean, to bring this podcast full circle in closing, you know, will Peter Thiel's vision for that higher education will be the next great big bubble and will be totally disrupted, will that be true or to what extent will it be true? I think it's inarguably a bubble. The question is, will it pop or deflate? Yeah. I don't see a way that it deflates because the federal government is 
rolling it into our taxes, basically. Only way it would pop is if something changed in the way that student loans are granted. If any of that happens, then it starts to get really interesting. Clayton Christensen has said that, you know, the next 10 years, half of colleges will go bankrupt or whatever. I think that that feels extreme to me, but you make one change in the student loan legislation and that happens. So we'll, we'll see. On that inspiring note, Austin, any, any last plugs in terms of where people can follow, uh, follow Lambda, follow you and what they should stay tuned for? Yeah, I'm Austin Allred on Twitter or go to lambdaschool.com and take one of our free classes. Awesome. Austin, thanks so much for coming to the podcast. Ray and I, this has been a great episode. Yeah, thanks, Austin. Yeah, thanks, guys. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 